My guest today is Jeff Gates. He's an author, an attorney, an educator, and an investment banker, and an advisor to policymakers worldwide. He was counsel for the U.S. Senate Finance Committee for seven years, from 1980 to 1987. He practiced law with former Senator Russell Long, and he's done advisory work worldwide, including in Argentina, Australia, Brazil, China, Mexico, Pakistan, Peru, Poland, Puerto Rico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Korea, Thailand, the United Kingdom, and 10 other different countries. He's written a number of books. The ones we'll be talking about mostly today are Guilt by Association, How Deception and Self-Deceit Took America to War. He's been a contributor to trade and professional and popular publications from the Financial Times, Japan Times, Los Angeles Times, Financial Executive, Emanate Today, Latin Finance, East and West Business Report, Society, Human Resource Management, National Journal, Humanist Business Ethics, America, Boston Review. He's an investigator, particularly into organized crime. And you can find his blog at thecriminalstate.com. So after that long-winded introduction, Jeff Gates, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you. Now, it is late June. A few weeks ago, we had the anniversary of the attack on the USS Liberty, which was attacked on June 8th, 1967. I believe this is a meta-issue because... Had the truth of that attack come out in 1967, the U.S. would not have the special relationship it has with Israel today, which means there would not have been a war in Iraq, and the U.S. would not be currently arming al-Qaeda in Syria and the rest of it. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, the attack on the USS Liberty was on June 8th, but that really began uh, much earlier. Uh, certainly on June 4th, um, LBJ and Bob McNamara, who was then the uh, defense chief, had dinner at the home of Abe Fortas. And Abe Fortas was an uh, attorney to LBJ uh, back in 1948 when he won his uh, Senate seat in a contested election in Texas, in a primary election. Uh, so it was really Abe Fortas, who was an arch-Zionist, who was one of the insiders who really helped uh, set up that attack. So that goes from 48 up to June 4th of 67. And uh, at that dinner, um, he had a, a fellow named Loeb, of Kuhn Loeb, one of the uh, investment bankers, at the dinner with him. And basically, they were trying to find out whether Lyndon Johnson understood that the war was going to start the next day. It's since, it's since been portrayed as a defensive war. It was, it, it was anything but a defensive war. There was testimony from an Israeli general who said they'd been planning that attack on Egypt since 1952. Um, and so they timed it very accurately so that they, they timed it for 7.15 in the morning when they knew that the, the, the traffic in Cairo would be very heavy. They knew that's when the uh, Egyptian Air Force downed all their planes while they, while they made a shift in the pilots and the command. And so they timed it uh, exactly for 7.15 the morning of, the, of June 5th and uh, obliterated the Egyptian Air Force on the ground. And... Uh, and then try to pass it off as a defensive attack. Um, of course, USS Liberty was steaming offshore in international waters at the time and was picking up transmissions uh, throughout the war. And lots of theories about why they may have attacked the USS Liberty, but uh, the two that seemed to be most robust is that they had not, the, the Israelis had not yet taken the Golan Heights uh, from Syria, which they desperately wanted, and uh, both the Russians and the Americans were trying to shut down the war, and they didn't want that to happen. And two, there's fairly good evidence that the, uh, that the Israelis had captured quite a number of Egyptian prisoners and were executing them and burying them in the sands. Uh, so there were a number of reasons why they would have they'd be motivated to attack the uh, ship. But it was a 
the ship was clearly identified as a USS vessel, a U.S. Uh, vessel, and it was attacked in international waters. And uh, and the cover-up of that uh, remains the probably the greatest blemish on the U.S. military in its uh, in its history, and certainly its naval forces. Yeah, they even shot up the life rafts. It's interesting that this was planned in 1952 because that's when Gamal Nasser was sworn into power in Egypt. It's also interesting to note that after Operation Susanna and the Suez Crisis War, Eisenhower directed peacekeeping forces to monitor the border between Egypt and Israel. And they were set to be there for 10 years, which they were from 1957 to 67, but just weeks after they were removed, Israel attacked. And of course, Israel claimed that they did not preemptively strike, but that was a lie. They even went so far as blaring air raid sirens to scare the public when nothing was actually in the air. In fact, the Israelis were bombing the Egyptian Air Force, which was still on the ground. Now, I know you were friends with one of LBJ's speechwriters who relayed an interesting story. Could you explain that? Yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. Um, there's a fellow who was actually in, the, um, in Israel the night that the war broke out, named Harry McPherson, who's an old friend, and he was counsel to LBJ. And he actually wrote the resignation speech that LBJ uh, made. He didn't know for sure that LBJ was going to resign. He, stuck that in his uh, speech at the last minute, meaning the old man, as he called LBJ, he stuck that in his speech at the last moment. But Harry told me, he said he was writing the speeches that uh, Johnson was making on Vietnam. And he said, I think I really should go over there to see what's going on. And and he said, well, that's fine. He said, well, I'd like to fly back through Israel on the way back home. He said, that's fine. Just clear it with everyone. So Harry made the speech. He flew into Tel Aviv the, the night before the war began, and the lights were off in the airport, and he thought that was rather curious. He checked into his hotel, and the, he got a call about 4.30 that morning, he told me, from our U.S. ambassador over there, and he said, uh, he said, Harry, the war has started. And he said, what do you mean, the war? I just came from the war, Vietnam. He said, no, I'm going to pick you up at the, in the hotel lobby. Be ready. I'll be there in a few minutes. So he rushed and got downstairs. So they went directly from there to the to the office of Abe Eben, who was the uh, Israeli ambassador to the U.S., and had a short chat, and then they went to the head of Israeli intelligence. And as he told me, they were sitting in his office and saying, and, and the ambassador asked the first question. He said, well, did the Egyptians in, invade? And, and he, he sort of, had, the guy clearly was avoiding the question. So Harry asked the question again in a slightly different way, and the guy avoided the question again. He said, well, they were quite, you know, combative and they were and he said but did they actually invade and he avoided the question again he said before they could ask the same question for the third time the air raid sirens began to wail and as harry said the the head of israeli intelligence very nonchalantly looked at his watch as harry said don't you think we should go into the air raid shelters and the general looked at his watch and said no that won't be necessary and harry said he looked at our ambassador and they both went oh my god Clearly, if this was an attack on Israel, they would not uh, they would not be so nonchalant. It clearly was uh, the the case of the Israelis that attacked the Egyptian Air Force and taken them out. And so, with that, they went uh, you know they they called off the meeting and went back to sort of rejoin forces and say, well, what do we do about this? So it was clearly a and they since admitted it. The Israelis have since admitted that there was no threat, there was no attack. And that, that set in motion everything we've seen, seen since, because that provocation is what upset everyone in the neighborhood as it was meant to do. Well, they must have been extremely confident that they had LBJ secure, because attacking a U.S. ship is suicide, especially for a small state like Israel. So I guess we should get into LBJ's extramarital affairs with Matilda Krim 
and who she was and what organizations she belonged to. Who was she? What was her relations to the president? And how were they setting up this attack on Egypt? Well, sure. There were there were two fellows, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. Uh, Lou Wasserman initially uh, was on the West Coast, with the uh, became the head of Universal Studios. Uh, Arthur Krim was on the East Coast with a United Artist and a lawyer in New York. And they established during Kennedy something called the President's Club. At the time, it was kind of a meet and greet, a $1,000 a plate dinner, and the President would show up. Uh, Arthur had the good sense strategically to buy a piece of property adjoining the L, what we call the LBJ Ranch, the Lyndon Baines Johnson Ranch, out in the rural area of uh, Texas on the Pedernales River. And he built something called Matilda's Mansion, which Matilda was his wife. She had been an Ergun terrorist, uh, married to an Ergun uh, terrorist who was banned from Israel by the Brits in 48. Uh, she was 20 years Arthur's uh, junior. After she divorced uh, her terrorist uh, husband, she married Arthur, and they and she had what was called, you know, Matilda's Mansion. And LBJ was known to take Marine One, the helicopter, over to see Matilda when Arthur was not there, and they had a very robust affair ongoing. And the night that the six-day, that the so-called six-day war began, or the six-day land grab, as more accurately be the, it should more accurately be called. Uh, Matilda was in the White House that night, uh, servicing our Commander-in-Chief in the White House. So what's the what's the possibility that an Ergun terrorist would be servicing our Commander-in-Chief the night the war broke out, if that was anything other than a long, long-planned offensive uh, land grab? And so they had, they had LBJ completely compromised. Arthur Krim was then head of the Finance Committee for the Democratic National Committee. And here the commander-in-chief, who's head of the party, is sleeping with that guy's wife uh, in the White House. Uh, so they had him compromised a different, lots of different ways. But LBJ was an easy guy to profile. He'd been in Washington in the late 30s as a congressional aide and a congressman, then stole his Senate seat and showed up as uh, being advised by Abe Fortas, who helped him uh, steal that seat in the primary, and uh, sleeping with this uh, Jewish gal who was a former you know, terrorist. Uh, so that's how this crowd operates inside our government and has for decades, and it remains uh, ongoing. And she later got an award from President Clinton. Well, they took Matilda back, and they and this happens frequently. They took her back and rebranded her. Once you've done a successful operation, you get a payoff. And they, they went back and rebranded her in Hollywood as an, as an AIDS activist. She was quite uh, close to Rock Hudson, who died of AIDS, and Elizabeth Taylor, the high-profile star who was kind of an HIV activist, that sort of thing, and made her into a medical researcher. So you fast-forward from 67 until 2000, and Bill Clinton, who was another classic asset of this uh, of this crowd, another what we call American, quote, president, end quote, uh, gave her the Medal of Freedom, which is the, the highest civilian award that the uh, executive branch uh, uh, can give any American. And they gave it to Matilda Krim, the Ergun terrorist who helped facilitate... Uh, the Israelis taking all the land that outraged everyone in the region and, and pre-staged what became the, you know, the reaction which we saw September 11, 2001. Bush Jr. did the same thing for William Sapphire for his work in selling the war in Iraq later. But I guess I should ask you, what was the 1967 war about? You say it's a land grab. What were these men thinking? They were just going to go occupy land where people are already living? 
as if this was manifest destiny in the 20th century? Well, a number of things. One, they've, all, they've long had this notion that they are a, a chosen people and that land is theirs. It was a, they're, they're the chosen of a god of their own choosing who apparently whispered in someone's ear that this is your land. And they've created this enormous mythology around this, and they think they, they generally think that they are, uh, they are entitled to operate above the law as the chosen. And so they have this notion of sort of greater Israel, which is an enormous swath of land that just coincidentally happens to straddle the largest oil patch on the planet. And they think it's their right to take that land by hook or by crook. And, but they've been actually quite brazen and open about how they would go about it. And, um, a report that was released in, uh, in the mid nineties, um, you know, called, it was, it was called the, a clean break. And it was a new strategy for securing the realm, as they call it. And realm, of course, is a notion that we are descendants of a king, King David, and we have the right uh, to this land. And in that uh, list of things they would do was uh, was taking out Saddam Hussein in order to take uh, virtual control of Iraq, in order to take uh, then take uh, control of Iran. And the tragedy of this, of course, is that the Joint Chiefs uh, of the Pentagon warned Harry Truman, who was a like George Bush, an earlier Christian Zionist. He happened to be a Democrat. Bush was a Republican. But the Joint Chiefs warned Truman in 48 that do not recognize this uh, extremist enclave. Uh, they said their fanatical concepts, that's their quote, not mine, their fanatical concepts will lead them to manipulate us in order to achieve, and I quote again, military and economic hegemony, dominance, over the entire Middle East, end quote. And that's precisely the way it's working out. Uh, even now, we're, we've got another product of this, uh, of this phenomenon out of, out of Chicago, not coincidentally, uh, who is, who, who may yet be manipulated to take us, uh, into Syria en route to Iran. I'm hoping he may have awakened, uh, to this. We'll see. But, uh, he is the product of, uh, of the Chicago outfit, uh, and, uh, the same, um, same sort of what I call a transgenerational criminal syndicate who, uh, who, who produced Truman, they produced Johnson, they produced Clinton. It's, it's a long and distinguished lineage of uh, people that they've uh, put in the White House successfully to date. It was absolutely vital for Israel to wait or make sure the Kennedys were out of power before they took these steps. We had Jack going after them for their hidden nuclear program in Demona, where they were stealing nuclear secrets and material from the United States. And then we had Robert Kennedy going after the American Zionist Council, which soon morphed into APAC and ZOA, trying to register them as a foreign agent. And he later was killed by a Palestinian, allegedly on the anniversary of the Six-Day War. Well, it's an interesting story, and one unknown to the, to the Americans, but uh, in June of 63, uh, Jack Kennedy was very adamant that the Ben-Gurion should be shutting down what he knew was a nuclear weapons uh, program out the Demona reactor in the Negev Desert. And he wrote to him in mid-June, he said, I need to know beyond a reasonable doubt that you're not building, building nuclear weapons. Beyond a reasonable doubt is not friendly diplomatic language. That's the language that a judge gives a jury in a criminal uh, case to, you know, the standard for guilt in a criminal case like murder. Uh, and before that letter could be physically delivered, and keep in mind they intercept everything that goes on uh, in, in the U.S., uh, before that letter could be physically delivered, Ben-Gurion resigned. And so that's what you call an entropy strategy, entropy as in physics. You know, you, now you had no one to negotiate with. The government was in limbo. And by the time it could gear back up and be in fully operating uh, uh, condition, 
uh, the Kennedy problem was handled, at least the Jack Kennedy problem was handled. At the same time that he was trying to shut down their nuclear plant, uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy, then Attorney General, and a guy named uh, Bill uh, Fulbright, who was then Chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, were doing their best to get the Zionist Council of America to register as what they were and remain, which is uh, foreign agents. Uh, with the death of Kennedy, uh, Robert the, Kennedy... Sorry, yeah. that's to register with FAR, the Foreign Agent Registration Act. That's right, register as foreign agents. And with so with the death of, of Jack Kennedy... Uh, the uh, Robert Kennedy was moved out. They brought in someone else. LBJ appointed a different attorney general, and that issue went away. That was November of 63. It came back in, in June of 68 when Bobby Kennedy uh, announced that he, of course, he was in the presidential uh, primary, and he won the California primary, which is a big deal in the United States. Lots of electoral votes. Uh, as, he's, as he's exiting through the kitchen in the Ambassador Hotel, a, a fellow, uh, you know, killed him. And uh, and with that, because the threat at that point was again, if he had been elected, he could have revived uh, the the previous agenda, which is shut down what became the Israel lobby, shut down Israel's nuclear weapons facility, and he would have had the cooperation of Bill Fulbright, who was still chairman of the Senate uh, Committee on Foreign Relations, in doing that. So if you're trying to control the variables out there in the field, that was those are several enormous variables. And one of the best ways to con to manage variables when you're when you're uh, as sophisticated at warfare as the Israelis are, is to make sure that those variables go away. And with the death of Robert Kennedy, they went away. And of course, you have this plausible Patsy, this Palestinian who shot him. So of course, it must be the Islamic extremist again. And when Levy Esco replaced Ben Gurion, uh, it was that October that uh, Jack and Robert. Went after the went after the American Zionist Council again and told them they had 72 hours uh, to respond in the matter. And the following month, Jack was shot. He was assassinated. And then it goes on from where you were saying. Well, you're talking about assets, though. Could you explain a little bit what you mean by an asset? This is not an agent per se, but somebody, I guess, who's been profiled. Could you explain what you mean by that term? To be sure. This again the. One way that this, uh, this, this crowd of the syndicate hides in plain sight is by fuzzing up the language. So if you watch, if you go to Hollywood movies and they use the term asset, it's usually someone who has information. That's not what an asset is. An asset is someone that you've profiled in sufficient depth that if you put them in a time, place, and circumstance of which you can have an enormous amount of control, particularly in politics, you know that, the, you know that they will behave consistent with their profile. It's not absolutely certain but within an acceptable range of probabilities, they will perform consistent with their profile. If you walk Monica Lewinsky in front of Bill Clinton, I knew women who bragged to me when he was a governor that they, that he was betting them down when he was back when he was a governor. So if you walk Monica Lewinsky in front of Bill Clinton, what was the probability that he was going to take the bait? And of course he did. And that was a great, great way to get his, get him distracted while you were sort of pre-staging the, the, the uh, the 9/11 attack it was a great way to make sure he didn't wasn't fully focused on the attacks that were going on in Yemen against you know the USS Cole those types of things and then when things really began to get dicey and this, these affairs are being restaged he is distracted with an impeachment hearing because he tried to cover up an affair with a White House intern in game theory warfare all of that is 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 modelable you can take out algorithms and sort of design algorithms around this. 
and say, okay, if we walk Sweetie in front of the commander in chief and he takes the bait, then how's this going to play out? And, and you can literally do a game board on this. And each, ne each next step has a probabilistic outcome. And if you control enough of the variables, you can move an agenda in the direction you want it to go without being seen. That's how assets play such a key uh, role in this. Just simply act, people acting out their, their needs for influence, for power, for sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever it may be. And Clinton also bombed Iraq as Wolfowitz and company had been prodding him to do this during the impeachment proceedings and hours after he was not uh, confirmed, that the impeachment wasn't confirmed, he threw and stopped the bombing. So you can see clearly how they tried to jumpstart this back then because that was back in uh, the 90s when all these PNAC uh, goons who had been writing all these policy papers and all the pre-invasion lies that were reused again for Bush had already been said about the weapons under the palaces and the anthrax and the mobile labs and all these things were not new to the 2001, 2, and 3. Most of them had been written in policy papers for PNAC by the same individuals for Clinton. And I guess it didn't get him to get full on board. Bush was completely sold, though, especially after 9-11, uh, as were many Americans. Well, one of the one of the primary ways that uh, the Israelis or the Zionists, to be more accurate about it, the sort of uh, elite extremist fanatics uh, within the within this uh, broader faith community who themselves are victimized by this, one of the primary ways they operate is the displacement of facts of what you can be induced to believe. And if you go back through the five primary bits of intelligence on which we relied to go to war in Iraq, all of them are false. All of them are traced back to pro-Israelis or to the, or to this, this organization that you mentioned. And all of that intelligence was pre-staged well before 9-11, which gives you an idea of, of extensive premeditation in order to do this. But in order to make this work, you needed a, a classic asset in the, in the Oval Office who would order the attack. And so you had this brand name uh, politician uh, known to be highly dysfunctional. Uh, recovering substance abuse, a Zionist Christian, never left the United States except to go to Israel once as a Zionist Christian. And then you, and then you take an, an emotionally wrenching mass murder on, on U.S. soil. And one of the best ways, this is straight, this is psychology 101. It's one of the best ways to displace facts is with wrenching emotions, whether they be grief or whatever they are. And, and so with that, uh, with that enormous, you had a, an outraged and grieving nation who wanted revenge at that point. We'd never been attacked on U.S. soil, nothing remotely like this. You know, people jumping out of windows, all on, all televised. You could see it on television. So there had to be something done, and you had someone there who, who I think genuinely believed in this sort of Zionist prophecy, you know, this is going to be the second coming, and he had, you know, interviews of mentioning these sort of esoteric, uh, a Christian text and interviews with, with people that no one quite knew what he was talking about. It's but weird. God is both a racist and a real estate agent. Right, but in his own internal domain, as a true believer, he thought he was really acting out what, you know, sort of God wanted him to do, told him to do. And that's how you, uh, but if you watched the primary that put him into office, and I watched it very carefully in the summer of 2000, he raised about 50, his campaign raised about $50 million over about six weeks. So in effect, he preempted the Republican primary. Uh, and, and by the time they showed up at the nominating convention, it was clear he was going to be the nominee. 
he had the brand name as well, and probably the bundlers had assured that he would get the victory. Right. But as you mentioned, uh, when you're talking about Clean Break, uh, Richard Pearl is the author of that, as well as PNAC. And uh, they also talked about not only Iraq, but going into Syria next. And you can see, or see the roadmap playing out right now. But I would like to mention, too, that although the five main lies about WMDs were complete trash, it is sort of mind-blowing that that could occur and nobody in the press would call them out on it. How can you say things without any evidence whatsoever and lie to the entire nation and use Colin Powell's credibility to go to the UN and talk about anthrax? And nobody in the press said, hey, where's the evidence for any of this? I think it's the, I mean, Robert Gates, the former defense secretary, uh, both for Bush and for uh, initially for Obama, former head of the CIA, and I think personally like an honest broker, he coined, he coined a very fascinating term, very generic. He said, when you're waging unconventional warfare, the most troubling combatant is what he called the people in between. That means between the, an, the American public and the information that they need in order to make an informed choice, which is the basis of self-governance, the ability to get access to the facts. This is where you put your operatives, and they call them the people in between. In order to pull off this uh, amazing operation that you described, why was there no input from media, etc.? Well, you had to dominate that in-between space, and the primary in-between space in a in a self-governing uh, country is the media. And so there there was one sole remaining uh, media outlet that might well have have, have called uh, called them out on this, and that was Cable News Network, founded by Ted Turner out of Atlanta. The other, the other major networks by them were, were dominated already by, by Zionist owners and the, and the curriculum was pretty well set what was going to be coming out on the, on the, uh, airways. With the takeover of CNN, uh, that pretty much was a, was a coup d'etat in the media domain and the, and the people in between. And so you found, for example, this, this so-called reporter named Judith Miller was taking Ahmad Chalabi's, uh, uh, lies, and he later bragged about it, right? and just putting them right on the front page of the New York Times, not questioning them, just just absolutely reporting what he since acknowledged were lies. Uh, and so that was not reporting, that was not journalism, that was uh, that was propaganda, that was Hasbro, they call it, the ma manipulation of, of public opinion, and there's a Hebrew word, and and it worked uh, enormously effectively. Um, you you dominated that in between space, and for the for the decision makers in Washington, you did the same thing. You took the, the narrow part of the funnel for decision makers and you put your operatives in there. You didn't need to be the Secretary of Defense. You could be his deputy, Paul Wolfowitz. You didn't need to be the, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. You set up your own office of special plans inside the Pentagon. You put Douglas Fife in there and you generated your own intelligence. You didn't need to be the president or the vice president. You became chief of staff to the vice president, Scooter Libby, and you became the, the portal through which all this phony information came in. That's only three people. But imagine the impact those three people had on in framing the decision-making when you know you've got this uh, uh, profiled asset and decision-maker in the Oval Office who's going to be inclined to support uh, whatever Israel wants anyway. I think it's crucial to point out that this was phony information and not mistakes or incompetence. Oh, we just got it completely wrong. These are known lies and propaganda. 
And one clear one was the claim about the meeting in Prague, where they said senior Iraqi officials met with Muhammad Atta. And then later, that was from James Woolsey and, and Gary Schmidt, and then it went through PNAC and Sapphire published it. But after that, after the anthrax letters had been opened, because they they were supposed to have been opened earlier, but after they finally came out, they compounded on the lie and said, okay, now there was a meeting in Prague where senior Iraqi officials met with Muhammad Atta and passed him a vial of anthrax. And the source for that report was Israeli security forces. And then the people who uh, sort of megaphoned it were all the same people you're talking about, Fife, Pearl, Wolfowitz, uh, and the rest of the guys in PNAC. And then later Dick Cheney said it on Meet the Press. And then Judith Miller and Sapphire, just a couple journalists in the New York Times. That's all it took. And we got these lies. But after the fact, nobody went back and said, hey, the Israeli security forces said they witnessed this. How can you witness something at a meeting that never took place between two parties, neither of which have had anthrax? And why haven't they been called out on that? How come now nothing has been said about it? I've said it a million times, this story, made a movie about it and everything. But uh, nothing seems to happen, even with the so-called alternative media. They talk about oil and other stuff, but this was crucial. Powell went to the UN with a, you know, a little vial of fake anthrax and made a speech that was Libby wrote. Why not now? Can't anything come out? Well, th I think again, it, it further confirms the dominance of the, of the pro-Israelis within the in-between space. You can't get to that information. And, and, and if you go anywhere near it, uh, you become, you're described as a Holocaust denier, a Jew hater, and an anti-Semite. And so the Anti-Defamation League has sort of got this uh, ongoing, and, and they now, uh, in conjunction with APAC, the Israel lobby, they put in some hate crimes legislation, and ADL now trains the FBI in spotting hate crimes. So if you go anywhere near the truth of this, and which is obvious, the common source of all this, and say they're all pro-Israelis, then suddenly you're, you're, you're a Jew hater. Yet this, the truth is the, the larger Jewish communities are the ones most victimized by this and have been victimized before by this. And, and which takes us again back to 1948 and Albert Einstein, another, and a whole group of high profile Jews at the time said, uh, don't do this. Do not, uh, it was a mistake to recognize this group as a legitimate government. Uh, this is a, these are Jewish fascists. Uh, Hannah Arendt, who signed that letter, a prominent Jewish novelist, uh, was more candid. She said, these are the Jewish Nazis. And she's right on target about that. Now, unfortunately, what you do is you have these people like Colin Powell, who I think was an innocent in this. I think he was, he relied on people for, you know better than the information you're provided. Your decisions are no better than the intelligence you're provided. People within his office provided him that. And when you were, when you're watching Colin Powell, you weren't really looking at Colin Powell. What you were looking at was a, was a field-based property. You were looking at his credibility. Where does credibility reside? Except in a shared field of consciousness. And you were looking at his celebrity. So that he was just, he was just used. He was like a prop and when you're, when you're doing a play. Now, unfortunately, he was raised and you have to dig back into the personal profiles of some people to see how they would have been induced to do this. He was raised in Brooklyn. His mother was a Shabbos boy. She cooked for Jews on their holidays. He had a, a mezuzah on the on the on his entryway to his home, so he would have been blinded by this by the friendship he had with uh, with Jews uh, when he was raised, and so the people within that community again have, have routinely abused and preyed on the broader Jewish community, 
would have used that sympathy and that blindsided piece of, of that to, to get inside his office and have him trust that he was indeed relying on reliable information. He knows he was used. I don't know if he fully gets who did it and how and why. But if he and, if he and George Bush were to go public on how both of them were used, that would make a huge uh, step forward in, in uncovering this because it's ongoing again right now. The same modus operandi has been used again as we speak and the same people. Instead of, instead of the two assets, John McCain and Joe Lieberman out there, uh, trumpeting the, the horn go to war, it's now John McCain and, and Zionist Christian Lindsey Graham out of South Carolina. That's right. But it's the same MO. It's the same MO exactly. Yeah, exactly. Same thing. Larry Wilkerson has come out and spoken some. He was Powell's chief of staff, but he doesn't enjoy the same kind of celebrity status as Colin Powell. But yeah, I guess you can't get the criticism out there. Now, the ADL actually wrote two different hit pieces on myself. I got the one in Heretz Removed. The one in Jerusalem Post remained. It was complete trash. Well, I've, got, I've got one of those as well that just came out recently. You know what? I'm going to leave it there because I want people to see how this crowd works. Because this, in the information age, this is treason. To, to deny the American public the information they need, and the most important decision any country can make is to go to war. And those people are denying us access to the information we need and doing so by trying to discredit people who are bringing facts to light. That is treason. And I want the American public to be able to see it for what it is and who's doing it. I was worried about losing my job, but, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I agree. Like, it's got to be done, and I, and I went ahead and, and bit the bullet and dealt with it anyway. But, yep. I mean, just talking about, look, they... We were lied. We were deceived into a war with Iraq. Attacking Iraq after 9-11 would be like bombing Mexico after Pearl Harbor. It didn't make any sense at all. And there was a Zionist cabal that, that uh, perpetuated a lot of these lies, and that's just the truth of it. But what the Zionists have done, uh, equating themselves as the Jews in general, is as stupid and silly as as blaming Muslims in general for you know the actions of any individual Muslim extremist. Uh, from wherever. Uh, but that's the irony of it. The state that has open colonization and house demolitions and is run by a bunch of racist fanatics are calling everyone else racist for not agreeing with their ethnic cleansing and their false flags and their house demolitions and squirting poison in people's ears and stealing passports and all the rest of it. It's complete projection. And again, calling critics of Zionists anti-Semitic is like saying if you criticize North Korea, you must be anti-Asian. You couldn't possibly have any other reason to criticize the government of North Korea, right? So I'd like to talk about uh, Graham and McCain for a while. They're the sort of the current assets, the face, and there are people behind them again. But John McCain flew, snuck into Syria and posed with a bunch of kidnappers uh, and terrorists. And we are rearming Al-Qaeda again. It didn't work in Afghanistan or Iraq, so... It ought to work in Syria, right? Because doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is perfectly sane, as they say. Right. But now, John, John McCain's family has a whole history of, of being assets and being covers up. His father was involved in the USS Liberty talk, which we initially began this discussion with. Uh, can you cover that some about McCain's father and, and how McCain got into politics? Yeah, McCain is, a, again, a classic, uh, absolute classic asset. Um, he was produced by this by this crowd. He, when he came back from uh, Vietnam, uh, before he returned, the his commander in the 
P.O. Debbie Camp wanted him brought up on charges of treason. Uh, whether the, whether his father, his father was head of the, you know, the Pacific Theater at the time. And, um, and they captured the fair-haired, uh, fair-haired blue-eyed boy of the, of the commander. Now, what was done to him in the POW camps, we'll never really know. We do know that his, his commander was enough upset by all the broadcasting made for the North and whatnot that he wanted him charged with treason. Uh, Nixon offered a block, a blanket, uh, pardon for any returning POW, a preemptive pardon, and then sealed all the records. John McCain's records are still sealed. But what we know is that he was, he would, he came back, he became the Navy liaison to the Senate where he met all the rock stars of the Senate, including Barry Goldwater, who was in the, the GOP Maverick in the Senate. Uh, Goldwater was going to retire in 86. So, uh, McCain is, is, goes out to Hawaii, meets the daughter of a mob boss, um, and becomes, uh, marries her and, and marries into an enormous fortune. He's brought out to Arizona and becomes a PR person for this beer distributorship. And they put him in the house in, um, in 82 as pre-staging for him to become the Senate Maverick to replace, uh, Barry Goldwasser when he retired in, in 86. And so it was a, it was literally like producing a movie. It's like a casting call. You go out and find someone highly dysfunctional whose, whose needs you understand and profiled and can, and can manipulate. He's got an absolutely raging case of PTSD, as anyone who's worked around him knows. He's done a very good job of keeping himself out of the uh, range of, of television cameras when he goes off, as he routinely does on people. Uh, and when he was brought, to, when his name was first mentioned as a candidate for the presidency in, in 2008, there were two high-profile uh, GOP senators, Trent Lott and one other, whose name I'm forgetting, who said this guy is way too unstable to have his finger anywhere near the trigger, meaning the nuclear trigger. And of course the Republican Party immediately shut them up. Um, but he was uh, he's a classic uh, a classic asset of this when his uh when Admiral McCain helped uh, cover up the the USS Liberty uh attack, he ordered a a uh, investigation and gave the court of inquiry ten days to complete it with no ability to speak either to the Israelis or really to speak to anyone because they dispersed the crew to really get much in the way of interviews with the crew. Uh, when he, after he was, uh, after he was, was done with that, uh, he was named commander of the Pacific Fleet and the fellow headed the, the, uh, the court of inquiry was named, uh, went from rear admiral two stars to a four star admiral and commander of the Atlantic Fleet. And the head of the USS Liberty, the skipper, a guy named, uh, well, McGonagall, Got a promotion to, got a, got a promotion. He got the command of a newly uh, commissioned ship. And get this, he got the Congressional Medal of Honor, which at least LBJ was too ashamed to present him on self. Usually those are made, those presentations are made at the White House. Instead, they took him off to the Navy Yard, which is this obscure area in, uh, in, in, uh, Washington and gave him the, the Medal of Honor. And so that's how you cover this up. This is seriously the most shameful spectacle in the history of the USS military, in the military, and particularly the Navy. And it's ongoing. People don't talk about it. They won't talk about it. And it goes directly to the heart of what the, what the problem is and at the heart of American politics, which is this entangled alliance with this, uh, with these people who have these fanatical concepts and seek domination in the entire Middle East. And it's the same as 9-11 there. Everyone that screwed up, they all got promoted. Well, this was, this was a pre-staging for that. And, uh, if you, in game theory, you know, you take a, you take an, a, a provocation. These are specialists in 
and psyops and agent provocateur operations. If you go out and outrage someone, you know, insult them or whatever it is, they're gonna, they may take a swing at you. They may pull out a pistol and shoot you. But once you've done the provocation, it's the reaction that comes into the foreground and the provocation, provocation recedes into the, into the background. So, you know, the, the 9-11 Commission won't have hearings on the motivation for 9-11 and the pro-Israelis on the commission said, no, you're not going to do it. And, and Tom Keene and, and Lee Hamilton backed down. They did not have those hearings. And they stuck in the back of the report, uh, the testimony of the so-called mastermind of 9-11, who said it was a Israel-Palestine, you know, conflict and their abuse of the, of the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. When you saw the interviews with, uh, Osama bin Laden. What what motivated him was the abuse of uh, of the of the Israelis when they went into Lebanon and killed seventeen thousand people. That's what activated him. So if you want to have a if you want to have a extreme reaction, have an extreme provocation. It's just psychology one on one. Come on now, they just attacked us because of our freedoms. That's what Bush said. Right. They they <laughs> they hate our values. But you know you had to have. Uh, Michael Hayden was quite uh, candid on this when he said, director, he said to pull off an, an attack like that, took an, it took a state sponsor and it took about 10 years to pre-stage it. At the time he was thinking we were going to blame it on Iraq, you know, and it, now that, now that that premise has completely gone away, there is only one other state sponsor who would have the sophisticated intelligence to be able to embed that operation and pre-stage it over a decade inside the United States. There is only one candidate for that. Well, there's only one intelligence agency that was caught filming the first plane hitting and celebrating the attacks and driving around in vans packed with bombs, too, and that was the Israelis. But talk about a bottleneck, putting people in the bottleneck positions when you're talking about the 9-11 Commission. I think Philip Zelikow, you could also say, was the equivalent of an OSP, Douglas Fife-type character who greatly limited uh, what the commission could look at and, and who they could subpoena and how much made it into the report because there are a lot of people from Schaefer and Able Danger on and a lot of people that we've talked to on, I've talked to on the show who, who made the reports and told the 9-11 commission what they knew and it never showed up in the final report. Well, I, I submitted a report and it's in the guilt by association in a footnote, but I, I walked around a 152 page memo in April of of uh, 2004, including taking three copies by the 9-11 Commission for Keene, Hamilton, and Zelikow, with testimony from someone who firsthand was in Iraq in 97 and came back with firsthand testimony from people inside Iraq that they had decommissioned the nuclear WMD program and and said, you know, uh, we're not crazy. We know if we had this program, the, the Israelis would tell you, the Mossad would tell you, and you'd attack us. We're not, you know, that he was a brutal dictator, but he was not crazy. You know, he wasn't simply was not going to do that. And he came back and he came back not only with evidence they did not have WMD, but also with an offer from the uh, the dominant sheikhs in Iraq to take out Saddam Hussein without a war. And to give the United States the bulk of the oil contracts and to give us a large portion of the reconstruction contracts. And he couldn't get any engagement. Worse, they were FBI agents who, who stalked him, who, who tried to discredit him. I've interviewed the people they called. So I took that by the 9-11 Commission under Zelikow, interviewed over 1,200 people. They didn't, they never even called me back and they never interviewed my colleague who they should have interviewed. 
so it was a it's a you know in time this will go down in, in the annals of history as is the one of the most perhaps the most successful psyops in history it took us to war on false intelligence you manipulated the sole remaining superpower to carve out its own economy to weaken its own economy from inside by going into two unnecessary wars taking on what's now estimated to be six trillion dollars in debt in order to wage these unnecessary wars and in effect waging war on the united states from inside the united states by undermining our economic strength and overextending our military if that's not war, if that's not treason, I don't know what is. Not to mention the un the unknown cost of lost trade and, and differences of what's happened in foreign policy, even in peace, because of relationships uh, with Iran and all the neighbors because of the war in Iraq and because of supporting al-Qaeda in, in Syria and invading Libya. Uh, trade would have been much more beneficial, but they're cutting off those sources of oil and gas uh, for conflict, which is just eaten up in the MIC, and a lot of this, a lot of these reconstruction projects never actually get completed. Uh, people kick around the money, but if you look at Iraq, you can tell right away it's just being wasted. They're not actually using it to do anything, and they they threw away the credibility of the United States too. They had the world sympathy after 9/11, and then after invading Afghanistan, which also, like Iraq, did not attack the United States. You can't collectively punish an entire country for what a small group does. Uh, they lost all credibility, and, pe and people hate us now. People hate the United States because of a foreign policy which is not even in U.S. interest. But if you, if you do it, if you think in game theory terms, that's precisely what you'd want to do. You want to discredit the United States and have us freely embrace the very forces that undermine our freedom. That's called game theory warfare, waged on the United States from inside the United States by a group of elites and extremists within a faith community who want to have you say, oh, it's the Jews doing this, and it is not. The people who are doing this are dominantly have a Jewish ethnicity or history, but they could care less about the faith and certainly about any of the values. In fact, I put a I put a clinical definition of psychopathy early on in guilt by association, so people would, you know, have it in front of them. And the five primary descriptors, just imagine to whom this applies. And when you're thinking about is, Israeli uh, policies, for example, the descriptors are superficial charm, pathological lying, egocentricity, lack of remorse, and callousness. That's psychopathy, or sociopathy. It sounds like Henry Kissinger. Well, he's a, he's a clear, when you see Henry Kissinger being waltzed out on the global stage, you know you're seeing a, an operative. Yeah, absolutely. And he's been at this an extremely long time. And even now he's perceived as credible and he's brought out to sort of, you know, what, make whatever the latest message is. But there's a couple of key people and, and Richard Pearl is now, looks like he's gone into hiding. He's not anywhere around. I think he's probably too obvious. And likewise for Douglas Fyatt. Uh, but you still see some of these. David Frum, who wrote the, the Axis of Evil speech for George Bush, he's on CNN all the time. He's the one that went around saying uh, Powell's speech was a slam dunk, him and Clark. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, so the, so this this crowd is shameless, and they, they've got an enormous amount of confidence. Uh, the chutzpah is extraordinary. Uh, happily, the obsessive-compulsive nature of the personality is such uh, that they will. They, it's not like they can now say, oh, gee, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not going to work. So at this point, they are stuck with continuing on the course that they're now on. 
And so that's that's both good news and bad. The good news is that's going to make them more transparent the more that people get the tools to see this. And your and shows like yours are helpful in doing that because people now say, oh, now I know what an asset is. I didn't know that before. I thought John McCain was a great American patriot and a POW. Absolutely the opposite. So once people can get the tools to see this for themselves, that's how you make it transparent. And if you make this, if you make these psychopaths transparent, while they are trying to act out their obsessive compulsive need for influence and control, then the combination is a toxic mixture, which makes them transparent. And with transparency comes accountability. And when you get accountability for crimes of this nature, there's a reason we call these things capital crimes. You know, in, in days of old, you would cut people's heads off. You have different ways of handling it now, but there's still capital crimes. And they're ongoing. It's, I had to steal a quote from Max Kaiser. He said, I'll never forgive Vietnam for allowing McCain to leave that country. Really cold. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that's, that's too good. <laughs> yeah, he went there. <laughs> he, did, he went there. That's, that's amazing. Do you know, Michael Ledeen is so psychotic or so delusional that he actually did try to say, what, I never supported the Iraq war and tried to actually backpedal in everything he did. And so uh, that he's another level of, of crazy. I guess. See, what, I, what I don't want to do is call these people insane, because under the law, you cannot be liable for a capital crime if you're insane. You can plead insanity, and you'll get off because you could not distinguish right from wrong and adhere to the right. That's the legal standard in the U.S. I sure. don't want to go there. I mean, they're not insane as in schizophrenic, don't know what right. they're doing when they're doing it, but they're insane in the sense of they're so evil. I, I mean, the words... Psychopathy. That's the kind Say there, you can... You can you can distinguish right from wrong, and you and you choose with premeditation to do what you're doing. In the law, that's called an evil mind. And there's a reason that we execute people like that, because it undermines the security of everyone else in your community. Well, I've called the neocons many things. Let's just leave it at that. What should people keep their eye on today? What should they be looking out for? Well, keep an eye. It's, it's important that people keep an eye on the current news, particularly above the fold stories that you see on, uh, in our major newspapers, like New York Times, like the Wall Street Journal, but also in CNN is particularly robust, uh, organ for this. Uh, Wolf Blitzer, uh, being a classic asset using a classic, uh, psyops by broadcasting from what he calls the situation room which gives you the associative credibility of thinking that he's broadcasting from the White House in the basement is the situation room where difficult situations are handled. So once you begin can begin to see psyops for yourself and understand the tools, uh, then that makes you a that makes that empowers you to do something about it. And anyone who sits on their hands at this point is part of the problem. People need to be animated, activated and uh and speak up. And, and join uh, programs like this, make sure people listen to analyses like this, and say we've got to get educated because we've been induced into the ignorance that is going to be our own undoing. The Blitzer is a former APAC employee, I should point out as well, which is That's the correct. Israeli lobby, which has been busted multiple times, spying in the United States and facilitating the theft of nuclear material and everything else. He was, just, a, yeah. he was a report. He was an editor for Near East Report, which was then in their internal journal at the time. Wrote a very sympathetic book on Jonathan Pollard. He did more damage to the U.S. security than anyone in the history of the country. And is, uh, you know, is is 
for 17 years, he was with the Jerusalem Post. And during the Clinton administration, and keep in mind, Clinton was another classic asset, on a par with McCain. The only reporting you got on CNN on Clinton was Wolf Blitzer. He was the White House uh, reporter for the entirety of the Clinton camp, uh, Clinton presidency. That was not by accident. And yet he has more credibility than some of the more obvious, I don't know what you'd call them, extremities on Fox and MSNBC. It's sort of a, they're well, a little bit too, too much of a character of people like Kennedy and, and Riley and those folks. They're just. Well, well, they branded, they branded CNN as news you can trust. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is, this is how this operates in plain sight. It's like, look, here are these other ones that are more extreme. So we're the one in the middle. We're the better one, you know, right. but. Yeah. You got it. That's the dynamic. So. Yeah. That's the sort of the, the, the games they play, which is why we do our own media because we're sick of the, uh, just the utter deceptions that are on TV constantly. They all the networks sold the war in Iraq, and they're all selling this uh, conflict in Syria today. Right. It's actually causing anti-Semitism. The Zionism, the Zionists are, and of course, the predominantly you know ethnically Jewish. That's like saying you know most of the Nazis were white. Of course, they would be. It's the philosophy of white supremacy. But you can't spin that around and say uh, that uh, Jew equals Zionist or white equals Nazi. So no. It only goes one direction, but some people uh, don't have even a fifth grade mentality and can't figure that out. But um, that's how it goes there. Well, this is this this crowd preys on ignorance, and if you if you take the United States into serial wars and run up a six trillion dollar debt, guess what the first thing is that gets cut? Education. So this this crowd preys on this again in game theory terms. This is precisely what you want to do. You want to discredit us, you want to bankrupt us, and you want us to put us in a vulnerable position while the people to whom you've been providing weapons and technology, particularly technology for weaponry, are, are emerging uh, ascendant. And that, of course, is, is China, which has now announced they're building a canal a, across uh, Nicaragua. Uh, they now are building an enormous port in, the, in South America. Uh, they're going to be the dominant player uh, based on a consensus economic model that is now branded the Washington Consensus. So again, we were induced to freely embrace the very forces that may yet undermine our freedom. And again, uh, if you trace it to the source, every time, everywhere you turn, you find the same network of operatives uh, embedding psyops internally so people actually freely do what you hope they will do. And that's, that's how we got ourselves into war. That's how we got ourselves into this economic uh, morass that we're currently in. It's just amazing how the U.S. supports religious fanatics, whether it's in Israel with the Zionists or the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia. Uh, all across the board, it's the secular governments that are getting attacked and the despots are getting propped up by foreign aid and, and uh, lopsided trade agreements and everything else. And it's against the U.S.'s own interests. So it seems as if it were by design to take this formerly great nation and attack its treasury and attack its military, attack its credibility, and tarnish the United States completely. And I don't know if it's going to be able to recover. It's a real question. It's a very open question at the moment, whether we can recover. And I think people don't have any idea just how serious this is or how much damage uh, that has been done to the U.S. Uh, by embedding, by allowing this entangled alliance to operate inside our country. And it... Um, and again, it's a lot of the moderate and secular Jews are, are victims of this. They identify with this 
piece of real estate that they may never visit. And if you can persuade them that they are, one, Jewish, and two, that they are insecure because that piece of real estate is insecure, then they feel insecure. And so they unwittingly become uh, complicit in this form of treason, not knowing that they are operating against their own personal interests. And that's the, that, is that, is it that sophisticated? Yes, it is. And this is how you pray on faith and how you pray on uh, Jewish identity, by getting people to go along with something that is absolutely not in their interest. Gilad Osmond has written a lot about that. He has a book called The Wandering Who, which I recommend people absolutely. Uh, to check that out. And also when you're talking about the weapons procurement, Grant Smith and I did a interview earlier that I, I would point to for people to check out. They go over from uh, Zalman Shapiro on to modern day. The, I call it from uh, from Demona to Apollo, or from Apollo to Demona. How right. they got the bomb, and, and it goes through there in Ermont. And um, you have a site as well. Can you give out your your sites and your books? Yeah, it's called CriminalState.com. You'll find about a hundred analyses on there, similar to what we're just speaking about today, including one on assets and Sinaim or uh, Hebrew for volunteers. And it's meant to give you the tools of perception to see how this operates. Uh, guilt by association is subtitled How Deception and Self-Deceit Took America to War. That's best That's best acquired online. And keep in mind for your listeners, it was deception and self-deceit. The self-deceit portion is the portion that your listeners need to work on most assiduously. Once you get the deception, that's pretty easy. The self-deceit means you need to look internally and say, okay, how have I gone along with this? How have I become complicit in this? How have I become an asset of this based on my own manipulated beliefs that I'm not even aware of? So again, if you go on criminalstate.com, you'll find numerous analyses that will help you uh, go through that, including uh, there's a chapter posted online on McCain and the USS Liberty, and also the introduction to the book can be found on uh, on criminalstate.com under the tab that says Guilt by Association. Well, I recommend that to everybody, and that is the hardest part. But once the goggles come off your eyes, you you can never reverse, and things are clear after that. But there are a lot of paradigms that we get trapped in that we're unaware of, and that's why you know political it's it's a process and growing experience. So check out Jeff Gates, go to his sites, read his books, and get those prior interviews that I suggested. And Jeff, thank you very much, and I will have you on again in the near future. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Look forward to it, Ryan. Thanks so much. Be sure to smash that like button, share, and subscribe. And you can get a whole lot more content by following us on Patreon.